0: Welcome to StudentoftheBible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on Psalm 22. In my last podcast, we read through David's 22nd Psalm and emphasized the prophetic nature of almost the entire Psalm. And while we admitted that some of the experiences may have been felt by King David a thousand years before the life of Jesus, most of the Psalm seems to point directly to the suffering of Jesus on the cross and his triumphant resurrection and the good news, he has done it. I get chills just thinking about the power of prophecy enclosed in this psalm and the final words of victory over the cross. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at the various ways that different religions view that very first line of the psalm and Jesus' words as recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46, and Mark Chapter 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or some translations, why have you abandoned me? Forsake means to withdraw from or turn away from. Well, first I have to tell you, I can sometimes be so naive. Because for one thing, to tackle an age-old question like this, is pretty heady theological stuff. And to think that it would be a simple question to ask pastors the week before Easter is, well, pretty silly, actually. So what you're going to get is a lot of prayerful information that's probably going to leave you with more questions than answers. But in a way, isn't that what Jesus did during his life he wanted to provoke discussion and he would often answer a question with a question so here we are during holy week and as we wrestle with the heady issue of did god really abandon jesus we must make sure that we don't lose sight of really the more important point is that jesus did in fact die on the cross for our sins. We fall short in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds every day, and there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Jesus died on the cross for us. He became that sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, the scapegoat, the perfect unblemished lamb slaughtered so that we could be made righteous before God. There was and is no way for us to be made right before God except through the blood of Jesus. He who had no sin bore the sins of all of us. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him... We might become the righteousness of God. And then the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, said in 53, verse 12 Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. And Isaiah 53 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus really and truly did die on that cross that Friday of Passover week, nearly 2,000 years ago, and he really, truly did rise from the dead three days later. He has risen indeed. Hallelujah. Okay, are you ready? Let's dive in. The first school of thought, which is agreed upon by, honestly, most rabbis and many Protestant denominations and the Catholic Church as well, is that Jesus, in his final words recorded in Matthew and Mark, is referring to Psalms 22 very first line my God my God why have you forsaken me Jews in Jesus's day would know what scripture someone was referring to by merely reciting the first line of the scripture this is called the Jewish midrash where a line of scripture would be quoted and everyone would go ah yes they would know what you were talking about so To Jesus' Jewish audience, this was a message to them. They would be receiving a message of hope from Jesus as he lay dying on the cross. They would know how the psalm ended. The message was, yes, Jesus will suffer unbelievable pain on the cross. But this is not the end. His followers, as you can well imagine must have been, in addition to being fearful for their own personal safety, so discouraged that the one they thought was the Messiah was killed at the hands of the Romans. So Catholics and some Protestants believe that Jesus was in fact letting his disciples know, hey, this isn't the end. All that he had spoken to them about during these three years was to be accomplished. He has done it. That's the last line of Psalm 22, verse 31. It says, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That's literally the last line of the Psalm that Jesus is quoting from. Now, this isn't unusual. Jesus often referred to scripture just by stating one line and his followers, sometimes immediately, sometimes not, would know what he was talking about. So this isn't really unusual. Now Matthew and Mark, when they record the events of the crucifixion, it seems like they also are recalling the things that David prophetically wrote about in Psalm 22, like the dividing of the clothing by lot the despising by the people all the bones being out of joint bulls surrounding him etc so to catholics and to some protestants it seems that the intent of the gospel authors was also to point the readers to psalm 22 because matthew and mark would also know the entire psalm and they would know For example, that King David in verse 24 wrote, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hid his face from him, but is heard when he cried out to him. Okay, now, Matthew and Mark did not go deeper into explaining why Jesus called out that first verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But many theologians, including many Catholic theologians, believe it was to cause his listeners to be encouraged and to not think that God had, in fact, abandoned him. According to CatholicProductions.com, Jesus, by invoking this psalm, is quoting a scripture which says that, The cry of the one who is apparently forsaken by God is actually heard by God. Jesus, again, by invoking this psalm in their opinion, is giving hope to the hopeless. He's reminding them that the father doesn't turn his back on the one who is afflicted, but instead hears his prayer and answers his prayer. When you get to the end of the psalm, it ends this way. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. In other words, all the families of the earth will convert when God answers the prayer of the afflicted one. The gospel of Mark actually tells us that when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the very foot of the cross was a pagan centurion Roman soldier. And he sees Jesus. He hears the cry. And he says, truly, this man was the son of God. And so CatholicProductions.com says right there at the foot of the cross The conversion of the nations that Psalm 22 talks about is actually beginning. The conversion of the Gentiles is beginning. So they say Jesus not only quotes the Psalm, he fulfills it in the beginning of the conversion of the nations with the words of the centurion. I think that's awesome. The Catholic Catechism explains, quote, in other words, what the Catechism is saying is far from despairing when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? What Jesus is actually doing is speaking on behalf of all humanity. And they say, now, don't get me wrong, he is crying out in anguish. He feels the pain of the cross. But he's using inspired words of scripture to cry out to God on behalf of humanity, who feels abandoned by God in their suffering, who feels abandoned by God in their sin, who feels abandoned by God in the darkness of the valley of their tears, such that every prayer that was ever uttered from the beginning of time until the end of time all the suffering of all humanity, is caught up in the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which is spoken as a prayer to God the Father. And the Father answers the prayer by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, in their opinion, if you've ever felt abandoned by God, if you've ever felt forsaken by God, always remember Jesus knows what that's like. He experiences that in his human form on the cross, but he also cries out to God with Psalm 22, which is the psalm that tells us God doesn't abandon his righteous ones and that he will answer their prayer and bring about the salvation of the world, end quote. Well, Here's another interpretation of why Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Martin Luther actually set out to study this, what he calls the profound cry of Jesus. And he wrote a study on Psalm 22. Now it's been said that when Martin Luther studied this, he studied for a long time in solitude without food and in deep meditation. Now, just as a true confession, while I've been studying this, I I did eat, I did sleep, and occasionally my dog Buck would join me, so I was not in complete solitude. Anyway, um, the quote about Martin Luther says that, At last he rose from his chair and was heard to exclaim in amazement, God? Forsaken of God? Who? Can understand that. Okay, to be honest, the whole idea makes my head hurt. So, this topic is called penal substitution penal, P E N A L, substitution. The question is Did Jesus, by taking upon himself all of our sins, he who had no sin, get punished by God as though Jesus? himself had committed them was Jesus taking on the sin of the world so like horrible that God himself could not look upon him now that's actually how some interpret this because they say God is perfectly holy and cannot be in the presence of sin and that for that moment even Jesus fully God fully man the son of God became abhorrent to God the Father. Martin Luther's sermon on this topic says, but now if God's wrath is to be taken away from me and I am to obtain grace and forgiveness, someone must merit this for God cannot be a friend of sin or gracious to it, nor can he remit the punishment and wrath unless payment And satisfaction be made. Now, no one, not even an angel of heaven, could make restitution for the infinite and irreparable injury and appease the external wrath of God, which we had merited by our sins, except that eternal person, the Son of God Himself. And He could do it only by taking our place assuming our sins and answering for them as though he himself were guilty of them. This, our dear Lord and only Savior and mediator before God, Jesus Christ, did for us by his blood and death, in which he became a sacrifice for us, and with his purity, innocence, and righteousness, which was divine and eternal, he outweighed all sin and wrath. He was compelled to bear on our account. Yea, he entirely engulfed and swallowed it up. And his merit is so great that God is now satisfied, End quote. But make note that Luther does not go so far as to say that God abides abandoned Jesus. It's obvious from his writings he really wrestled with this idea. Now, the Reverend Bryn Macphail, M-A-C-P-H-A-I-L of the Reformed Theology, he, however, explains that the gospel of Matthew and Mark should be looked at differently. So I will quote from, from him. He explains that Jesus' did, in fact, experience abandonment from God. On the website, PlymouthBrethren.org, he says, The first three saints of the Lord on the cross were addressed to men. With this cry, however, Jesus addresses himself to God. For the first three hours of daylight, the Lord's body had been exposed to the burning rays of the pitiless eastern sun, as well as the merciless onslaught of demons and men. He continues, Infinitely worse than that, though, during the three hours of darkness, his soul, being made sin, experienced the relentless crashing of the waves and billows of God's wrath. But infinitely worse than that, for the first time throughout the ages, He experienced abandonment by God. The author continues, At the close of the sixth hour of darkness, he broke the silence with a shuddering cry of desolation. My God, my God, why hath thou forsaken me? The author continues, These words spoken by the Savior constitute the most desperate cry ever uttered in the annals of human history. In this cry, we sense a darkness that is inscrutable, a depth unfathomable, and a desolation incomprehensible. The cry reveals an awful sense of loneliness, a loneliness that never existed as that as Calvary. The hostile crowd was there, crying for his death. The hosts of darkness were there, unmerciful and violent. He was abandoned by his friends and now surrounded by his enemies. There was no help coming from heaven. No voice angelic or divine that responded to the penetrating word, why? Meditation on this forlorn cry, made Martin Luther exclaimed. God-forsaken God? Who can understand that? The author, Reverend MacPhail, continues, The life of the Savior had always been lonely. There was the babe in the manger, the boy in the temple, the praying man in the desert, the agonized in Gethsemane, the defenseless prisoner in the trials. These had all been scenes of solitude. Loneliness was not a new experience for him, but nothing previous to this was to be compared to the loneliness and desolation of experiencing God's wrath for mankind while on the cross at Calvary, end quote. I'm going to respond to what he just said, that at no time was God not with Jesus. To me, the very belief that the Trinity could m- make this possible is, is is anathema. Jesus took on humanity and experienced all the hardships that this entails, but at no point was God not with him. But again, I've said that there is a contemporary belief that God did in fact abandon Jesus. And they'll point out that Jesus, and this is kind of interesting, addresses the Lord as father throughout the Bible, but that here he says, my God. Now, they make note of this because they say Jesus is calling God, his own God, my God. Interesting, huh? They make the argument that, quote, the eternal, almighty, righteous, holy, demanding, just inflexible God poured out his wrath upon his only son who was the sin bearer and was paying the awesome price of redemption and they explain that God saw and felt the dreadful pain that his son was bearing and that God forsook him temporarily until the full price was paid and they say that the argument for God abandoning Jesus temporarily is continued when Jesus says, why? The theologians point out that Jesus had never used the word why before. I think that's interesting. They say that the experience that drew this word from his lips is unique and unparalleled. And in Psalm 22, verse 3, they say, here's the answer. They say the answer for the why is, quote, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. So what is it that caused God to forsake his son? They say the why is that it was his holiness turning away from sin. The Lord was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. Okay, I also found this interesting in their argument. They then look at the word, Why have you? forsaken me. And they say that being forsaken or abandoned or misunderstood, again, is nothing new to Jesus. They say that Jesus often experienced forsakenness among his earthly people. His brothers never believed in him nor followed him, which really had to be heartbreaking. His neighbors in Nazareth, they tried to kill him. The nation to which he came did not receive him. Many of his followers turned away from him and walked no more with him. And then Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, many forsook him and fled. And then just a handful were even there at the foot of the cross. So the writers point out in this cry of anguish, he's saying, okay, I can understand my family, my fellow citizens, my nation forsaking me, but I can't understand you forsaking me. Up to this moment, when he had been forsaken by men, he had always been able to turn to his father, they reason. But now he's in this wretched state of abandonment. The earth becomes dark with fear and trembles violently at the power of the desertion of his father. Okay, I have to take a break here. This argument is why I can't believe this. Again, I do not believe the Trinity can be broken. That goes against what we believe as Christians. This Reformed theology continues, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So now they want to focus on me. Uh, They say, here's where we see Jesus's personal grief. And they point out that this is the mystery of the cross. They say there would be no mystery in God forsaking us because we're all wretched and helpless sinners that can't bring ourselves to the Lord's righteousness on our own accord. True. But why would God forsake his son who knew no sin, did no sin, and in whom had no sin, and the son in whom he testified that he poured all his delight in? The only beautiful and glorious answer, they say, to this question is that Jesus was taking our place. He was being forsaken there on the cross so that we, believers in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, might be forgiven of our sin and promised an eternal home, end quote. So the followers of this argument end it this way. We maintain that Jesus was forsaken by the Father on the cross. We maintain that when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not simply feel forsaken. He was forsaken. He was forsaken on our behalf. In theological circles, this has come to be regarded as penal Substitution. There's an author called John MacArthur. He wrote a book called The Murder of Jesus. And he says, God was punishing his own son as if he committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who would ever believe. End quote. I want to try to summarize what happened on the cross. Both Matthew and Mark's Gospels tell us that after Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And that Roman centurion watching Jesus die exclaimed, surely he is the son of God. Okay, so just real quickly, the temple of Jerusalem had a curtain that would separate the holy of holies. That's where the presence of God was from the rest of the temple that's where the Ark of the Covenant was housed and it was the physical location where God would meet the high priest once a year for the atonement of sins so we believe that this tearing of the curtain as described in the Gospels was symbolic now of the fact that because of Jesus's suffering and death on the cross to bear our sins his death like, literally remove the barrier between us and God. And, and this is actually called justification because there's no longer a need for a blood sacrifice. Thank God. Jesus' sacrifice dealt with sin once and for all. No longer do we need a high priest to speak on our behalf and no longer do we need to slaughter an innocent animal. Jesus has assumed this role, as described in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. The relationship that we were created to have with God is now made possible again. We can stand righteous in his presence. Now, the Old Testament told us that sacrifices had to be these perfect, unblemished animals and Humans are not perfect. Only Jesus could pay our price. Only Jesus could suffer in our place. When Jesus hangs on the cross, despised, suffering, dying, he has upon himself really the entirety of all sin. And really there's this terrible beauty in his death in that it shows us that God loves us so much that he took our place on the cross and died instead of us. That's kind of what they call the beauty and the good news of the cross. But here's the thing. It's not just for Christians. Just like the Psalm 22 talks about. I'm going to end with a quote by Catholic writer Paul Sens. He says, This forgiveness of sins is for all people, universally, suffering and death. Yeah, they're universal, not to be escaped by any man. As a result, all men can relate to Christ and his cry from the cross. And all men can share the hope of Christ that is communicated in his own steadfast trust in God. Have a blessed day.